Hey, it's Elahe. There is so much that's changing with the midterm elections right now, with races still being called. If you're looking for up-to-date information in the mornings, you should check out a new podcast we've launched that gets you up to speed. It's called The Seven, and it gives you the top most interesting stories every day by 7 a.m. We'll put a link in our show notes and episode description where you can sign up or you can subscribe wherever you listen. Ukrainians are celebrating a major victory in the war with Russia. Last week, Russian forces retreated from the city of Kherson, and on Friday, Ukraine took the city back. The Ukrainian military took back this city from Russian forces, which had been uh, the sole regional capital that Russia had managed to capture since the start of their invasion of Ukraine back in February. Shane Harris is an intelligence and national security reporter for The Post. We saw these amazing images of troops coming into the streets, people rushing out to hug them, kiss them, people celebrating. Uh, It was reminiscent of, you know, scenes from World War II of occupied cities being liberated from the Nazis. So it was a very triumphant uh, moment, uh, and it has a lot of people, including the president of Ukraine, wondering if this is a major turning point that signals the beginning of the end of the war. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Monday, November 14th. Today, we talk with Shane about how Ukraine's latest victory came to be. What could this mean for the trajectory of the war? And what could Russia do next? How long has Kherson been occupied by Russian forces, and why was it such an important place for them to hold? Well, Kherson's been occupied since early in the war, and it was really, I mean, it was strategic for two reasons. I mean, one, it was the only regional capital that the Russians had captured, so there was kind of a symbolic aspect to this. But the other reason it's important is that uh, Kherson is this important port city located where the Dnieper River meets the Black Sea. And so strategically, it's a very important place that Russia was holding kind of in the front line of, of the war. So for Russia to lose that now, after they've held it since, you know, near when the invasion began, is probably one of the more dramatic signs we've seen of just how spectacularly the Russian, you know, lines have collapsed. Um, This war switched from being one of an offensive war by Russia to really more of a defensive war trying to hold this territory it had seized for some months now and Ukraine making these steady gains in liberating area after area. So for Kherson to fall now is not just symbolically important, but it's a huge strategic loss for Russia and a victory for Ukraine. But what does rebuilding look like for the Ukrainians? What does it look like in Kherson now that liberators have recaptured the city? Well, what we're hearing now is that Ukrainian authorities are working just to restore electricity um, to the city. There are four electrical lines to the city that had been destroyed 
Uh, and now Ukrainian officials are saying they're working day and night to bring power back to the city, which has been without electricity for more than a week. So there's just a basic services kind of level of improvement going on there. Um, there are also mines in the area. There's going to be, have to be a big effort to get those mines out of there because it's going to be dangerous for people to move around. So what you're talking about now is trying to, I guess, restore sort of the basic fundamentals of daily living to this city that's been under occupation for so long. Do we know why Russia retreated? Well, I think the story there is probably the same as it is in so many of these places. Their military has proven to be ill-equipped, literally ill-equipped. It doesn't have, I think, in many cases, you know, the the munitions that it needs. It, the soldiers that are fighting, many of them are conscripts. They have not been fully trained. We've just seen this story kind of repeat itself over and over again, where the Russian lines keep collapsing in the face of this much more formidable and organized counteroffensive by Ukraine. I think what we understand now, if we wind this back all the way back to February, is that Russia didn't have the manpower and it didn't really have the equipment and the training probably that it needed to fully invade and hold Ukraine. Uh, and so that's been a story that we've just seen repeating again and again. And Kherson is just this latest example. We've seen in other places as well, the Russians retreating, abandoning equipment hmm. um, uh, because they either had, don't, they don't have the will to fight and don't really have, they're not equipped to fight. Shane, I want to take a step back and ask, what did Kherson look like under occupation? We've heard some pretty brutal stories from other cities. What have we heard from this city? Occupation in all of these places where the Russians have been has been probably you know, hell on earth, frankly, for the people who right. are living there. I mean, there has been overwhelming, credible evidence of war crimes by Russian forces, rape, murder, pillaging. Kherson is really probably no different, and I suspect that in the days to come, we will hear more stories like that uh, of killing, of uh, of raping, of pillaging. And so while these places have been under occupation, it has also been, I think, a very motivating force for the Ukrainians that they understand that when they come in and they liberate these cities, they hear the same stories over and over again of what life was like under occupation. Mm -hmm. um, so, And you can, I think, really sense in – in, in the speech that President Zelensky gave today when he visited Kherson, that there is a sense of, you know, that we are, we are moving forward. We are not stopping here. And this has been a really important message that the Ukrainians have been pushing since the beginning, really, uh, of the war, but especially since their counteroffensive started paying dividends, is they want Russians gone from every inch of territory in Ukraine. Whether that mm -hmm. is feasible is a separate question. Mm -hmm. But the, what life has been like and the misery that Ukrainians have been suffering under Russian occupation helps explain, I think, why there is such a desire to keep going and to liberate the whole country. And, and what have Ukrainian officials said about this Russian retreat and its significance? The Ukrainians are painting this as, as President Zelensky said today, the beginning of the end of the war. Is it the beginning of the the end of the war. Of course, you see our strong army. We are step by step coming uh, to our to our country to all the temporary occupied territories. It remains to be seen whether that is an overstatement, but they see the fall or the, the recapturing of Kherson and the retreat of the Russian forces from this region that had so long been under Russian control as a symbolic and a strategic turning point. And I think that they want to seize that momentum now and to keep going. That is certainly the picture that President Zelensky was painting when he spoke from Kherson today. 
moment is very important. That is the biggest, the biggest city what was occupied since 24th of uh, you know of February. So that is the biggest city, and now it's free. So Ukraine came. So I'm happy. Thank you. After the break, what Russian forces might do next. We'll be right back. So, Shane, tell me what Russian officials have said about the withdrawal from Kherson and also about the other places that they've withdrawn from. The Russians, I mean, in some cases, they've not even been even reluctant to acknowledge that they have been retreating. But what's interesting to me is that they're not pretending that the war is going great over the past several months, I guess I would say. There is still, of course, you know, there is this mobilization that has gone up in Russia where they're trying to recruit people of fighting age. They have acknowledged publicly that they have had to move back from certain places to form up defenses. I think that they are, you know, looking at these regions that they illegally annexed and declared Russian territory as being the place where they're going to, you know, mount a defense and say, look, here we're defending Russian territory and to some degree kind of gloss over the fact that they, you know, they lost all this territory that they had seized from Ukraine. And what does that say about how the war is going, the, the fact that they did lose a significant amount of territory that they had seized from Ukraine? I look back over the course of the past, what are we now, nine months or so of the fighting, and something I find remarkable is that every time Ukraine has advanced and taken back more territory or held off a Russian advance, we find ourselves saying, you know, well, how much further can Ukrainians go? Ukraine is, there's a lot of territory the Russians have occupied. And consistently, <laughs> Ukrainian forces just keep taking it back. It was notable to me that President Zelensky said today from Kherson that he thought this marked, quote, the beginning of the end of the war. I am very humbled in the face of these Ukrainian advances, and I don't think we should try to predict anything. But every time that analysts have said, well, Ukraine might not be able to take much more. Well, maybe this is where we enter a stalemate. They don't. They keep taking territory. So I think we have to be cautious, uh, uh, but there's probably reason to be optimistic. You know, these Russian forces have proven just incapable of holding a lot of this territory that they took. And I think it's tempting to wonder whether or not there is some kind of new momentum that the Ukrainians have. Certainly, you hear it in the words that they are speaking, uh, not that they've ever said that they're going to do anything less than push Russians entirely out of Ukraine. But I think that it's, you know, it's reasonable to step back and say, look, can you envision a future uh, in which maybe Russia doesn't entirely leave the country, but which in which Ukraine kind of resets things perhaps to where they were before the invasion. I mean, one big, big question in all of this is whether or not Ukraine would be willing to negotiate with right. Russia. Um, and they've given no signal that they're ready to come to the table and do that uh, and settle for something uh, uh, that looks like not their whole country. But it's just been remarkable to me, if we're taking a step back, of how consistently Ukraine has performed on the battlefield and how consistently Russia has just seemed to disintegrate uh, along these lines. Why is it that Ukraine has been so successful on the battlefield? Is it because they are more advanced strategically? Do they have more arms and weaponry right now? What explains their success here? 
I think that, you know, a lot of analysts and probably a lot of U.S. government analysts, frankly, before the war began, underestimated the degree to which Ukraine was both willing to fight, that it had that spirit and will to fight, and also that it was sufficiently trained to counter this invading Russian force, which I think it's fair to say almost everyone uh, believed was far more capable and, and, and frankly, coherent uh, in its execution of a strategy than it has proven to be. So on the one hand, why Ukraine has been successful is partly the answer to that is that Russia has failed so spectacularly and contrary to many people's expectations. But the Ukrainians are very well trained. The U.S. has helped train them and they're extremely well equipped. I mean, the it cannot be understated the degree to which weaponry supplied by the West and particularly by the United States, particularly things like medium-range missiles and artillery, has proven to be quite pivotal in Ukraine's prosecution of this, you know, counteroffensive against Russia. So the backing that they have had from the United States and from the West, from the coalition, combined with just this clear will to fight for what is, after all, their country, uh, I think helps tell the story of why they've defied so many expectations in this uh, in this war. Mm-hmm. I have to ask, are, are there any questions that this recent retreat by, by the Russians in Kherson that that there's almost, you know, like, is this some sort of ploy? Is there any sort of skepticism that, yes, they've re- they've withdrawn there, but there could still be much more dire consequences elsewhere? When the retreat from Kherson, the Russian retreat from Kherson began, I think there were some who questioned, including some Ukrainians I spoke to, whether this was real, whether they were truly leaving, whether it was a feint or kind of a head fake to, to, to lure the Ukrainians in. It appears now that it was real. And, and the Ukrainian forces, of course, you know, would understandably being cautious about that. I guess if we're thinking about what comes next and what, you know, questions linger here, there's always this question with the Russians about whether they would be willing to use nuclear weapons, tactical nuclear weapons, Mm. these smaller nuclear weapons on the battlefield. And there's long been a kind of calculus that Putin would not resort to that end, those means, unless he felt that there was some existential reason to do so, like he was about to lose the war entirely. So that question, of course, gets renewed again. I mean, would he feel so up against the wall that he would use nuclear weapons It's worth noting that the CIA director, William Burns, met in Ankara in Turkey on Monday with his Russian intelligence counterpart. And we're told by the White House that one of the messages that Director Burns delivered was yet again a warning to Russia that if you use nuclear weapons in this war, you will face significant consequences. So I don't want to connect those two things too closely, but Mm. the consistent message from the West and from the United States particularly has been to Putin, if you use these weapons, there will be severe consequences. The fact that this meeting is happening now at a time when Russia just lost this strategically and symbolically vital place, I think just underscores the degree to which that nuclear question mark is hanging over this entire conflict and and is, uh, you know, kind of maybe flashing a bit brighter today. Yeah, yeah. And what about the rest of Ukraine? Where do things stand in the rest of the country and have Russians turn their focus elsewhere? Yeah, so now the Donetsk region in the east of Ukraine is what emerges as Russia's next focus. So we're reporting today that Moscow's troops are launching a new offensive there after they've retreated from Kherson. Uh, uh, and President Zelensky has also said the fighting in Donetsk remains intense. Uh, and he told crowds today that, quote, the level of Russian attacks is not decreasing. So that's where we're kind of turning our focus to. 
uh, in this next round is, you know, this eastern region, which, I mean, you know, as people have kind of forecast how the Ukrainian counteroffensive was going, this was always the question of when do we get to that kind of, you know, one of these more final maybe battlefronts in the east of Ukraine. There's also, of course, Crimea, the peninsula in the south right. that is occupied by Russia. But focus has always been on what's going to happen in the east uh, when and if Kherson were liberated. And that's where we are now. Mm-hmm. And that's always been a region that's been of in- intense interest for for the Russians, right? Yeah, and you know it's these eastern regions as well that Moscow declared Russian territory. Right. I mean, in a move that almost no country recognizes as legal. Yeah. The other thing that's happening is winter is is coming soon, and you know there's always been this focus of when it starts to get cold, and the colder months, things could could change on the ground there. What what are you looking for and what will you be paying attention to with the approach of winter? How could things change in this war? Yeah, I mean, I, one thing I wonder is whether we've kind of thought the wrong way about the winter. I mean, I've heard from some analysts recently who, who point out that, you know, look, when, when a really hard freeze sets in, there may be parts of Ukrainian territory that are frozen over and thus may be more easily passable and that really it's the kind of the, the muddy spring season that follows the thaw that is the harder uh, terrain to slog through. Which means one reason why Russia, we understand – wanted to invade in February when things were still frozen over. So I wonder the degree to which, you know, winter might actually work to the advantage of the Ukrainians. We'll have to see. Um, but, But certainly, I mean, another thing to keep in mind is that as colder temperatures prevail in Europe and energy prices are very high, that could potentially also strain, you know, the coalition uh, that has held together so far since since February and the war began, uh, even in the face of these just dramatically escalating energy prices in Europe where, you know, a number of countries are dependent on energy sources from Russia. So that may – the winter may actually play into more of the politics off the battlefield than it does the tactics on. But honestly, I mean, what I'm looking to to see right now is how does Ukraine capitalize on the momentum that it clearly has? I mean, for President Zelensky to go to Kherson to give this speech, people are ready for a fight. They have been, they've been fighting, obviously, but I think that there is a such a kind of a, a feeling of the wind at the backs of the Ukrainians now that it's going to be interesting to see in the next couple of weeks or month um, uh, where they go next and how they build on that. Thank you, Shane, so much for your time. You're welcome. Shane Harris covers intelligence and national security for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Renny Svernovsky. It was edited by Lucy Perkins and mixed by Sean Carter. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.